Okay, so we're uh, going to be studying the Gospel of John. This is just an incredible book. One of the, the reasons I've uh, selected this book as the, the book we should study first, and I say that because we'll see where the world takes it, but uh, I think this will be the first of, of many. Um, whatever our pet likes within the Christian field, and I, I mean, some of us have a, a deep passion for Israel, that's good. Some of us are very interested in prophecy, that's good. Some of us are very interested in evangelism, that's good. But the bedrock of it all has to be Jesus Christ. Any church, any fellowship has to be built on him. And that's one of the reasons that I want to study this book, because this is a a no-frills presentation of the Lamb of God. And if we have our relationship with Jesus right, and we'll talk about this as we go through in a moment, then everything else will be sorted out. Uh, Jesus himself said, seek first the kingdom of heaven. And my paraphrase is, and everything else will sort itself out. Um, That's basically what Jesus said. As we go through... The question is often asked, you know, why have we got four Gospels? Why, why different accounts? In reality, it's one fourfold presentation of Jesus Christ. Each of the Gospels present Jesus in a different aspect. We have Matthew that presents Jesus the King of Israel. And the focus of Matthew's Gospel is very Jewish in its outlook. If you understand that, some of the things we read in Matthew's Gospel make a lot more sense to us. Mark presents Jesus as a servant uh, and really focuses on his humility. Luke, who was a Gentile doctor, focused on Jesus as the Son of Man, looking very much at his humanity. Whereas John looks at Jesus as the Son of God, focusing on his deity. It's interesting to note that from that perspective um, that John's looking at, uh, and John's Gospel obviously is completely different to the others. The others are um, uh, referred to as the Synoptic Gospels. But John's Gospel is completely different, Um, and we'll talk about some other reasons for that in a moment. But it's interesting to know what's omitted from John's Gospel. Nothing about his birth, his boyhood, his temptation, his transfiguration, uh, the appointing of the disciples in general. Nothing to do with parables at all, we find here. Uh, Nothing about his ascension, and no mention of the Great Commission. It's quite interesting that that they're major aspects of, of doctrine, But they're not mentioned in John's Gospel, um, because John is focusing very much on the person of Jesus and his deity. And in fact, John himself, when we get toward the end of the book, John gives us his own reason for writing this. He says, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in his book. John's saying, look, there's lots of other things that Jesus did that I haven't recorded. And he says, but these things are written, so the things that he includes here, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Even in that explanation there, John is clearly presenting Jesus as God manifest in the flesh because you can't have life through any other person other than God God is the only one that is in that sense the one who we have life through his name in keeping with that the key word in the book is believe uh, we find over we find it actually a hundred times uh, the, the the Greek word we have there uh, is mentioned and it's translated in, in the King James which is uh, what I tend to use uh, believed believeth believest believing commit as in to trust the same idea. Um, the Greek word uh, is pistio. Uh, it means to have faith in, upon, or with respect to a person or thing. By implication, to trust, especially one's spiritual well-being to Christ. 
Now the question we need to ask is, why entrust our spiritual well-being to Christ? If he's just a man, if he's just a good person with some good teaching, why, we, why should we present or, or, or entrust our lives to him, our spiritual well-being? Well, clearly, Christ is God manifest in the flesh. And we're going to see this morning in chapter 1, we read, The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And that's a very sound reason to entrust our spiritual well-being to him. There's a slight controversy over the time of writing, as there is with most of the books of the Bible, in all honesty. Um, my personal perspective, after reading through loads of different commentaries and, and looking at the details, is that John's Gospel was probably one of the last books written. Um, written around about 96 to 100 AD, right at the end of John's life. Um, and this is after John had returned from Patmos. And that gives us some insights into understanding why John is writing. And when you look at it with that perspective, you start to see things possibly in a different light. Um, John obviously had been on Patmos. He'd been exiled there. Um, and it was there that he'd seen or he received this vision, this revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, um, which uh, God gave unto his servant, etc., and after leaving Patmos, he returns to Ephesus. John had previously been pastor of the church in Ephesus. Uh, we read out of the book of Ephesians at the start of the meeting this evening. Um, John had been uh, very instrumental uh, in leading that church. And it appears that John went back to Ephesus to, to carry on the work that he'd begun there or, or had picked up from Paul. Paul obviously had been planted, planted the church. But what John finds when he gets back is that now we've got these Gnostic heresies creeping into the church. The, the suggestion that Jesus wasn't actually God, that he was just a good person. Um, we have, particularly coming out of Alexandria in Egypt, um, based upon um, some of the, the Greek philosophers, um, uh, Plato, Aristotle, some of these characters and some of the things they said um, had been embraced by these Gnostics, that the word Gnostic just means to know, uh, and they, they, had, they believed this, this secret knowledge. Uh, and the suggestion was that Jesus actually had received the, the Christ anointing his baptism um, but he wasn't actually himself God in the flesh um, which is incredible how they can reach these conclusions when you look at the things we see tonight you just anybody that reads through the gospel of John can come away with no other understanding than John himself believed that Jesus was God in the flesh and in fact, if John's first letter, which we also believe was written at this time when he's got back from Patmos, uh, John writes there, I have not written unto you because you know not the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he that denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist, that denies the Father and the Son. Jesus putting them together. Whoever denies the Son, the same, has not the Father. But he that acknowledges the Son had the father has the father also it's very clear what john is is conveying here and in john chapter 10 verse 30 which we'll get to um jesus said there i and my father are one it shouldn't come as a surprise because jude had already warned about this um in uh, the book of jude verses three and four we read beloved when i gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation it was needful for me to write unto you and to exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude here refers to the Lord God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the, what Jude is saying is that there will be people coming in denying uh, who they are. 
It's interesting in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 44, uh, we read in verse 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Well, that's a real problem for those uh, of particularly Jewish persuasion who would say that there is just one God and, and you know, they deny the idea of the concept of a trinity. Because here we have presented in just one verse in the Old Testament that thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. And you notice whenever you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's the, uh, referred to sometimes as the tetragrammaton, it's the unpronounceable name of God. Uh, we uh, transliterate it as uh, Yahweh or Jehovah, um, but that's the name that you're seeing there. It is the name of God. Uh, and we have these, these two characters here. Uh, God himself, the, the King of Israel, referred to as Lord, and his Redeemer, also referred to as Lord. But notice what's said, I am the first and I am the last, and besides me there is no God. Now, grammatically that's kind of a contradiction because it's saying there is no God, singular, and yet we have at least two characters portrayed in this one verse. And it's also interesting because John, on the Isle of Patmos, has this revelation, he sees this vision, he says, When I saw him, looking at Jesus, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Well, we've just read that quote from Isaiah, clearly saying that that is the attribute of the one God. You see, you can't have Jesus saying, I'm the first and the last, and God the Father. You see, uh, we get Revelation 2.8, uh, again, we have, Unto the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These things says the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. Well, that can't apply to God the Father. God the Father has never been dead. But to Jesus, that clearly is the reference, that, that he is the one referred to uh, in this verse. So the one that was dead and alive we know is Jesus, and that is the one that's the first and the last. So we have a, a dilemma. If God is the first and the last, and Christ is the first and the last, the only way of reconciling it is that Christ must be God. We find the same with the, the whole concept of the Saviour in Isaiah 43 verse 11. God says, I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no saviour. In Isaiah 45, verses 21 and 22, we read, Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I, the Lord? And there is no God else beside me. A just God and a saviour, there is none beside me. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. Very clear declaration in Isaiah. When we get to John chapter 4, which we'll be looking at next month when we get there, we read there, um, this is the, the, the woman at the well and everything else. He says, And they said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Saviour of the world. We've got the same situation, you see. If God alone is Saviour, as Isaiah is telling us, and yet throughout the New Testament, repeatedly in, in this verse alone, we're told that Jesus is the Saviour, the only way that both can be true is that Jesus has to be God. The same applies with the Creator. That We read in Isaiah 42, verse 5, Thus says uh, God the Lord, He that created the heavens and stretched them out, he that spread forth the earth and that which comes out of it, he that gives breath unto the people upon it and spirit to them that walk therein. Clearly saying that God is the creator. He's the one that gives life and has created everything. And yet we're going to see this evening in uh, John chapter 1, verse 3 we read, All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He's talking of Jesus Christ in this context. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. 
See, again, if God alone is creator and Jesus is the creator, yeah, for both to be true, Jesus has to be God. Now, those are just three examples I've picked, but we could go on. There are so many other ways that we see the deity of Christ portrayed. This whole concept that Jesus was just a good person. I love this, this quote of C.S. Lewis. Um, he says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claims to be God. There are people like that today still. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he will be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. He carries on and says, You can shut him up as a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. I think it's a fantastic quote. See, the deity of Christ we see throughout Scripture, Genesis 1, 26, uh, is let us create. Now, can't people try and say that's talking to God was talking to the angels? Well, the angels weren't involved in the act of creation. This has to refer, that we see the, the whole idea of the concept of the Trinity from there. The, the very phrase, that the, the Hebrew word Elohim, it's a plural noun. You've got a cherub, cherubim. When you find an I-M ending on a word, it's plural. Um, and it, but it's always used as a singular, referring to the one God. But we see this, this, uh, this um, unity, uh, this plurality and unity uh, with the Godhead. We find the angel of the Lord appears throughout the Old Testament. Clearly, this is God. From the, the context, we find numerous occasions. And we, we understand that it's a physical manifestation of God. You see, Christ is the final and the ultimate manifestation of God. In uh, John 1.18, we'll look at this evening, we read there, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. You see, Jesus has come to declare the God that we cannot see to us. You see, John's come back from Patmos. He comes back and he finds this heresy creeping in. You can understand why he wants to write this gospel really as a um, rebuttal against this, this Gnostic heresy that Jesus is not God. One other interesting thing we find is this heptatic structure, this use of sevens. Now, throughout those of you who study Revelation, you'll know we've got sevens everywhere. You know, and if any ask you, anyone asks you a biblical question regarding numbers, always answer seven, because more often than not, you're going to be right. In John's Gospel, we have seven I am statements. We have seven miracles. Uh, seven witnesses, which we'll look at in a moment, and seven times the phrase metatauta. Now, that's a phrase that occurs in the book of Revelation frequently as well. Uh, it just means after these things. Uh, and seven occasions uh, occurs. All the, the scriptures and details are all in the notes. The seven I am statements, we have, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and life. I am the way, the truth, and life. I am the true vine. You see, these seven could not be said by somebody who wasn't God. Uh, you couldn't have one of the prophets saying, I am the bread of life, or you know, I am the good shepherd, or I am the resurrection. This, this could only be said by deity. The seven witnesses, it's interesting, John the Baptist declares, this is the Son of God. Nathaniel, we'll read, says, thou art the Son of God. 
Peter will say, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Martha says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of God. Thomas will say, My Lord and my God. John himself um, says, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus himself says of himself, I am the Son of God. Those seven witnesses that we find throughout the book as we go through. The seven miracles that we'll see, very, very interesting. Jesus did lots more miracles, um, but John specifically selects these ones. Water to wine, healing of the nobleman's son, healing of the man at Bethesda, feeding of the 5,000, walking on water, healing the blind man, and the raising of Lazarus. Uh, It's very interesting. There's so much in these as we get to them, and we'll see. We'll look at that first one this evening. There's a fantastic book called What the Bible is All About by Henrietta C. Mears. Some of you may have come across it. It's just a really good explanation to the details in each book of the Bible. It's just, just fantastic. I recommend it. Um, what uh, she says in her introduction to the, the, the Gospel of John is, The theme of John's Gospel is the deity of Jesus Christ. More here than anywhere else, his divine sonship is set forth. In this Gospel, we are shown the babe of Bethlehem was none other than the only begotten of the Father. There are evidences and proofs given without number. Although all things were made by him, although in him was life, yet was he made flesh and dwelt among us. No man could see God, therefore Christ came to declare him. Great summary. So why this book, as I said at the start, you know, Christ is the bedrock and the foundation on which we are to build. Um, It's not about our ideas or ideals. Uh, Every church, every fellowship must be built on Christ. Jesus himself said, I will build my church. Um, You see, it's his church and we're just his sheep. Uh, John's Gospel introduces us to Jesus Christ. So our goal and aim is to be rightly related to him. Now, as a fellowship of believers here this evening, that needs to be our aim. Forget all the other things that we, we, we're interested in or have curiosities about regarding the Christian life. Our primary focus needs to be our relationship with Jesus. I love this quote from Oswald Chambers. He says, Immediately we look at these words of Jesus we find in the most revolutionary statement human ears ever listened to. Statement being, seek you first the kingdom of God. We argue in exactly the opposite way, even the most spiritually minded of us. But I must live, I must make so much money, I must be clothed, I must be fed. The great concern of our lives is not the kingdom of God, but how we are to fit ourselves to live. Jesus reverses the order. Get rightly related to God first, maintain that as the great care of your life, and never put the concern of your care on the other things. He also says, if you want to be of use to God, get rightly related to Jesus Christ, and he will make you uh, of use unconsciously every minute you live. I think it's fantastic. Okay, into chapter 1. Chapter 1 is broken down um, into, I, I see, kind of a, a few sections. We have the introduction, verses 1 to 3, uh, which is the introduction to the Logos. We'll talk about that. Then we see Christ's mission laid out for us, uh, verses 4 through to 14. Uh, and Christ is presented as the light of the world. Then we have if you like, the unveiling, the announcing of Christ, uh, verses 15 through f- uh, 34. Uh, and that really is John the Baptist's testimony of who Christ is. And then the first disciples we find are called um, in verses 35 to 51. Uh, and it's interesting, we'll break this down when we get there, but we have four different groups of people, or four different types of the ways people come to know Jesus. Um, those that are seeking, those that were witnessed to, those that were sought by the Lord himself, and those that are convicted or convinced. We'll talk about that when we get there, but I think it's quite an interesting breakdown as we go through. Okay, let's get into the text. 
in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, we could spend a whole evening on just that one verse. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. You see, the, the phrase we have to start there, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, that in the beginning is, is when the beginning began. He was already there. This is not, Jesus was not a created being. He was there before the beginning took place. And we're told, was the word, the word that we have there is logos, and it just simply means reason in terms of thoughts or, or a word in terms of the expression of that thought. You know, when we, we think something, if we're trying to convey to somebody else, we have to put it into words so that other person would hear us. Jesus is very much that for the Godhead. He is that the expression of the Godhead. Um, sorry, let's just go back there. Um, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. You could put a note um, in uh, your Bibles uh, to cross-reference that with Colossians chapter 1, where we're again given the details about Christ being the creator. Okay, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. You know, this this idea that life was the light of men, we've become so accustomed to hearing the, the evolutionary propaganda that we, we tend to disengage our brains so often. We're told here that in him, in Christ, was a life, and the life was the light of men. If you just stop and think about it, the very fact that we're alive is one of the most incredible witnesses and testimonies to a creator. If we were just inanimate objects that got together, molecules and everything else, and gradually became more complex, at what point did that become alive? You see, from an evolutionary perspective, there can really be no such thing as life because you just have inordinate matter that arranges itself in a particular way that maybe gets a bit more complex. But at no point is there any mechanism to add life to that in the way that we perceive life. You can't add emotions. You can't add um, love or justice or those kind of things. They're not physical. Okay, So this is such an incredible testimony that life itself demands a creator and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness comprehends it not you know right back from the garden of eden originally man was created to walk in fellowship with god god knew the plan he knew what was going to happen but we end up in this situation that because of the fall we're now in this spiritual darkness we died spiritually We may be alive physically, but back in the garden we died spiritually. And what Christ came to do was to illuminate. Because the darkness comprehended it not. We couldn't understand that which was of spiritual nature. Paul tells us in the book of Corinthians that uh, that which is of the flesh can't understand that which is of the spirit. See, all life originates from God. Adam was just a shell until God breathed life into him. You remember that God had created Adam, then he breathes life into him, and he becomes a living soul. See, life itself is a great light, but man had rejected that light. That's why God had to be manifest in the flesh to help us see and lead us back from darkness to light. That's what Christ came to do. There was no way we could have seen without that. Well, then we, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. John here 
recording John who writes the gospel, talking about John the Baptist here, this, this man that has come in sent specifically by God um, to bear witness that this light was coming. That was the true light which lights every man that comes into the world. Just a, a little detour, and I apologise if this is going to be too deep, but I just think this is incredibly fascinating. Just that last verse again, that was the light, the true light. Jesus is the true light that lights every man that comes into the world. You know, we have no problem in understanding that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. But I don't know that necessarily we understand it as literally as it's said. In Genesis, we're familiar with the, you know, the, the, the opening verse of the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, the earth was in that form of void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Now, we make the assumption here that what God said is, let there be light. And then we have the editorial comment, and there was light. So we, 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 we perceive that all God is saying is, let there be light. And we perceive the creation of light at that point. I don't think that's quite what we've got going on here. If we look at it in the Hebrew, and uh, we've got the Hebrew going across, Hebrew reads from right to left, all right? What we've actually got there is said Elohim, God, right? Said Elohim, be light, be light. You'll notice here we've got a repetition of the words. That, that, the, the, the vav there is simply there as a, a, a join, from grammatically join the, the words together. But we've actually got, if you look just... You don't need to know too much about Hebrew, just look at the shapes. You see you've got the same shape there and there and there and there. So literally what is being said here is, Sel Elohim, be light, be light. What's my point? Well, as I said, we, God said, let there be light. I think a better translation of that would be, let the light illuminate. Let light be light. Let light illuminate. Now, if that's the case, it means the light was already in existence. It means that light wasn't created. You see, for the light to now illuminate, it had to already exist. In uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, we read, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, and this is a reference back to the creation, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. For God, who commanded the light, if God is commanding it to shine, it must already exist, yeah? See, my contention is that light, therefore, is pre-existent. In Isaiah 45, we've got a very interesting passage. It says, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. It's a verse that some people struggle with because of that. I create and create evil bit. We'll mention it. The word for create darkness there is bara. It means out of nothing. That's in the Hebrew. Whereas the word for form is the answer. It means to mold into a form, to fashion, to form, uh, make, potter, whatever. It, the idea is you're forming something that is already in existence. Okay, So God is forming the light, causing the light to shine, but creates darkness. You know, you can't have darkness without light. See, darkness doesn't actually exist. You can't measure darkness. Yeah, Darkness is... a. Uh, uh, Something, a word that we use to explain a lack of light. We can see light, we can measure light, everything else. But darkness, in a sense, doesn't actually exist. It's something Einstein himself had said. Uh, I should actually just mention as well. When we get to that second part, I make peace and create evil. Okay, that's, again, we have that form against the create out of nothing. You see, evil can only exist because of the presence of a holy and righteous God. It's by the very existence of God... It makes evil a possibility, but God doesn't create evil. 
in the, the sense that we would perceive in our, in our understanding. E- evil exists because God is there. Darkness exists because of light, if you understand where I'm going. In John eight twelve, we read then, I spoke to Jesus again unto him, saying, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Jesus himself declaring to be the light. Uh, in 1 John 1, 5, This then is the message which we have heard of him, and declare unto you that God is light. Not God shines light or whatever. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. See, I believe that light was pre-existent in the person of Jesus Christ. God commanded the light to shine. The light simply then illuminated when Jesus Christ, the pre-existent one who is the light, created all things. One very interesting thing, I hope I don't lose you here. Each particle, you go down to the smallest possible thing we can imagine. Most of us can get to atoms and then we go below that we have the subatomic particles and everything else. Each particle has an antiparticle, so uh, physicists tell us. Um, if they collide, they annihilate each other and produce a photon of light, the smallest possible unit of light. Physicists suggest it's a reversible reaction. So the implication is here, you see, if you've then got light, you could actually then go the other way. The implication is that light could have created matter. Now that's something that secular physicists had come up with. What are we told in scripture? That Jesus Christ, who is the light, created all things. I'll leave it with you for a bit of fun. Okay, uh, back into the text, um, verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, his own received him not. You see, the world had rejected God. The world had rejected Jesus. They didn't understand. They weren't, they're in darkness. They couldn't perceive. He came to his own, the Jews. The Jews rejected him. They didn't see. Because of that, national blindness was, was pronounced upon them. But then we're told, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. That phrase, sons of God, benai ha-elohim, it always refers to a direct creation of God. Uh, we find uh, Genesis 6 and in Job uh, 1, Job 2, Job 38, always in reference to a direct creation of God. And in re- relation to us, you see, God creates a new life in us. When we become born again, we'll be talking lots about born again uh, in our next session, uh, John chapter 3. Uh, but in, in 1 John 3, verse 1, we have this incredible verse. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world uh, knoweth us not, because it knew him not. What manner of love that we should be called the sons of God, that we become a direct creation. We're no longer just um, uh, aliens or, or foreigners, whatever. We've been brought into the household, into the family. Okay. And it's talking about us. It says, which were born... Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's interesting in Hebrews 12.9, we're told that God is the father of spirits. And it's interesting again, true life is not physical, it's spiritual. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. Again, you couldn't want a clearer statement of Christ's divinity than that. See, the eternal word, the logos, uh, the expression of the Father. In Colossians 1, we're told that Jesus was the image of the invisible God. Uh, again, this full of grace and truth. We, again, we could just um, spend so long breaking these things down. And, see, and this very act is the, the pinnacle of his grace, knowing that it would ultimately culminate in the cross. The reason Jesus came, the reason he was made flesh and tabernacled among us, 
is simply so that we would then receive this, this incredible grace that he would then, in our place, take all the suffering, all the punishment that we deserve for our sin. <clears throat> okay, now, after verse 14... You give verse 15. I know that sounds like a very obvious statement. Um, there is a suggestion by Adam Clark that these verses, the way we have it translated, uh, are kind of is like skewed a little bit. Now, this isn't taking away anything. It's not trying to add or subtract from the text. Don't worry about that. But I just think it's quite interesting, so I'm going to share this with you. The suggestion is that we go from verse 14, um, which and the word was made flesh to add among us. We beheld his glory, the glory as the as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, which would then carry on, verse 16, and as of his fullness we uh, have all received grace for grace. And then we read, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. That would go into 18. No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, um, which is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Then we see, verse 50, this is what the suggestion is. Okay, and I'll let you to decide whether you want to accept or reject. Um, then we would get, after this, no man has seen God, but the Father has declared him. John bear witness of him. And it just follows on, you see, and cries, saying, uh, This was he of whom I spoke, uh, he that cometh after me is preferred before me. So that's the idea. See, what uh, we get the suggestion is that we go verse 14, 16, 17. 15 is, is possibly in the wrong place, the way we translated. Because that comes to the natural end of that section. And then we start, in a sense, a fresh topic. Verse 18. 15 would carry on, 19 and so on. I mentioned it to you, it's the details are in the notes. Again, it's up to you whether you accept or reject, but uh, let's just now go on from there. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming that that is possibly the case, and I'll, I'll go through the text from here. So we've looked at verse 14. Verse 16 then talks, And of the fullness have all we received, and grace for grace, grace beyond that which we deserve. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. You see, the law could only condemn us. The purpose of the law was to confine us under sin. It was to show that we couldn't make it by God's righteous standards. That was the reason the law was given. And this contrast is put here. that The law was given by Moses. Couldn't help us, just condemn us. But grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. It's grace beyond what we dared to ask. Uh, interesting the prodigal son Luke 15 you know when he comes back he doesn't deserve anything but the father comes out and embraces him and welcomes him back that's us that's the kind of grace that our father has given us through Jesus no man has seen God at any time the only begotten son which is in the bosom of the father he has declared him we looked at that verse earlier on but the question is no man has seen God Well, what about in Genesis 18, where Abraham has a face-to-face conversation with God? Or in Genesis 32, where Jacob not only sees God face-to-face, but he wrestles with him all night? What about Exodus 24, where Moses and the elders of Israel go up the mount and see God and eat and drink in his presence? What about Joshua, Gideon, Samson's parents, and the others throughout Scripture see God and their lives are spared? Is that a contradiction? No, there's no contradictions in the Bible. We just need to dig a bit when we find these things. The answer we find in John 4.24, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. You see, what we have in the Old Testament are physical manifestations, but God himself is a spirit. That's why no man can see God. We're told eventually that we will see God as he is, but for now, God has got to reveal himself to us in a form and in a way that we can perceive. So God has declared him, and then if the hypothesis that I mentioned is right, the verse 15 should then slot in here, it's John bear witness of him and cried saying, this is he of whom I spoke, he that comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. 
And this is the record of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are thou Elias? And he said, I am not. Are thou that prophet? And he answered, No. Interesting here, because we have the question asked, Okay, are you the Christ? No. Are you Elijah? No. Well, again, they were expecting the Christ. They were expecting Elijah from the prophecy in Malachi. And then we have, are thou that prophet? Who's that referring to? Well, it's believed to be a reference um, to, um, to Moses, who was believed by some Jews to be coming back, a prophecy in Deuteronomy 18.18. 18. It's very interesting, for those of you who have been studying Revelation, that we have two witnesses representing the law and the prophets that would seem to be Elijah and Moses, the two that would be indicated here as on their way back again at some point. Then said they unto him, Who art thou, that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? You see, John has not been officially ordained by the religious leaders of the day, and they want to know, by what authority is he doing this? You know, nothing changes. Um, we see the same things going on uh, today. He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet uh, Isaiah. Um, they, and they said, which was sent of the Pharisees, and they asked him and said unto him, Why baptizest thou then, if thou be not that Christ, nor Eliza, Elias, nor that prophet? See, John's answer is, I'm doing what I'm doing because of the authority of the word of God. Because I am the voice, I'm the one that, that uh, Isaiah prophesied would come. That's my authority, the word of God. Apparently that's not good enough for the religious leaders. I'll leave you to uh, think that one through. Verse 26, John answered them saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you know not. It is he who is coming after me, is preferred before me, whose shoe latched I am not worthy to unloose. These things were done in Bethbara beyond Jordan where John was baptizing. See, John's baptism was symbolic. What John was alluding to is that the cleansing that Jesus would bring would be the real thing. Yeah? The real cleansing would be done by Christ. The next day, John sees Jesus coming unto him and says, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. That is an answer to the question that was asked back in Genesis chapter 22. Remember the situation with Abraham. Isaac spoke unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. You know, that which was provided ultimately, we know the story that Isaac wasn't offered up, but it was a ram. It wasn't a lamb that was offered. That was not the solution that God had promised. What Abraham says here is that God will provide not a lamb for himself, but he will provide himself a lamb. And then John here sees Jesus coming and he says, Behold the lamb. This is the lamb. John carries on, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. Again, declaration of his deity. John was the older one, he was Jesus' cousin from a fleshly point, an earthly point of view. Uh, I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. That reference there, John saying, I knew him not. I don't believe that's just in a, 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 an earthly perspective, because he was his cousin. I'm sure every Jew every year would have to go up three times a year to the, to the, te the temple. I'm sure they met. But what John, I think, is saying is, I didn't know his divinity. I didn't know he was God. Um, and I think that's what he's saying. John's role was to prepare the way. John bear record saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. 
And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizes with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. So John now is saying that this whole idea of this, this baptism, because people have a problem with why Jesus was baptized. It was a sign for John to know who the Messiah was. John's job was to announce him. God had said to him, the one that you see the Spirit descending upon and remaining on uh, is the one that is going to be baptizing with the Holy Ghost. This is the one. And John's saying, right, now I know who he is. That was the reason that Jesus went through this baptism. Jesus didn't need to have his sins cleansed or anything like that. Um, it was simply an announcement. It was a fulfillment of what God had promised John would be the sign of the one that was coming. And John now says, I bear record, I saw this, and I bear record that this, this Jesus Christ, is the Son of God. Okay. His baptism wasn't an anointing for service or anything like that, as some have postulated. Rather, it was a public sign, as I've just mentioned. Okay, thus, John declares him the Son of God. Uh, not he's become the Son of God, as the Gnostics would like, would like to say. Uh, he was already the Son of God. Now we just see him manifest. Again, the next day after John stood, and two of his disciples... Sorry, again, the next day after uh, John stood and two of his disciples... Um, And looking upon Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. John now pointing his own disciples to Jesus. Uh, You see, he's practicing what he preached, pointing men to Jesus. Later on we'll read that John says, He must increase, but I must decrease. You know, we're not to get converts to our opinions, but we're to point men to Christ. That's what we should be doing. It's not about getting people converted to our point of view or our understanding of a particular thing. It's pointing people to Jesus Christ. And that's what John's doing here. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following, and said unto them, What seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to be interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? He said unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt, and abode with him for that, that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Now, what we're seeing here, this, this question is, What seek ye? Uh, it's so important. We, we, this is the, the first of, I believe, four different ways people come to Christ. Now, I myself grew up in a Christian family. I had Christian parents. They brought me to church every week, and it was kind of a natural progression. I didn't have to be con- convinced. You know, it was just part of my life. I believed it. But there came a point where that question was asked. You know, the, the, the question, have I got the question? Yeah. What seek ye? You know, who is it that you think you're following? Who is it you're, you're looking to? You see, there still has to be this individual decision but there are many people that have become christians in that kind of situation you know grown up believing they're already in a sense searching but until you get to that point of asking the question what actually is it you're looking for because how do you know that that which you found is that which you're looking for if you're not sure what you're looking for you with me you see and every time jesus asks a question it's not because or anytime god asks a question it's not because he's looking for information all right god knows everything when he asks a question it's because he's trying to get us to think and that's what he was doing here with these people. He wasn't, you know, you know, trying to get some information out of them that he didn't have. He knew exactly the situation. He was getting them to think. And bringing them to that point where, although they believed already, they were following, they just had to make that personal choice of, yes, I believe you are the Christ. And that's the decision they made. You see, there still has to be that moment of decision. Another example we have carrying on. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first finds his own brother, Simon, and said unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. 
there's a lot we could look at into to that. There's some details in the notes on that. But the thing I want to pick up on is this, this idea of, of what actually happens here. This is a, the personal testimony approach. And some people come to Christ in this way. The second way of the four, the people come to a knowledge of Christ, is the irrefutable power of personal testimony. People can't deny what's happened in your life. And if you witness to people, they can't say, oh, I don't agree with that. <laughs> they have to agree with that. That's what's happened. It's your life. You see? And... What Andrew says here is, we have found the Messiah. There still has to be the moment of decision and a personal response. Same situation again. But it's another way that people are brought into a relationship with Christ. Yet another example. The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and finds Philip and said unto him, follow me. Now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Hand-picked. Now, this is quite a rare one, in all honesty. This is the third way uh, that I believe we have here of the way people come to a knowledge of Christ. Jesus himself seeks them out. Now, in one sense, that's true of all of us. Okay? We know uh, from Luke 19.10 and various other scriptures, for the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. We've all been sought out by Christ in one sense. But you see, both Philip and Paul were also martyred. Paul is another example of somebody who was actually sought out by the Lord. You yeah, know, Paul's conversion on the, the Damascus Road. But, you know, don't start thinking, why didn't God pick me personally, kind of thing. Well, as I say, Philip and Paul were both martyred. Um, so it's not necessarily the way you want to go, I mean, because you have the implications. But it is another way here that we see somebody coming to that knowledge of who Christ is. The last one of our four, we find verse 45 onwards. Philip finding Nathanael and said unto him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said unto him, Come and see. That last line there, verse 46. There's a lot of people that would question you know, the, the way God does things, but God will choose the weak things of the world to confound the wise. And uh, Nathanael's understanding here is that, well, surely you know, something great wouldn't come out of Nazareth. Well, that's the way God does it throughout history. That's why he came as a babe himself. But this example here we have, this is the fourth one I think we have in this example, or these examples I think that John's giving us here. Um, it's, the, it's again a personal testimony, but it's a testimony with evidence. You see, we have God's two witnesses being presented here as proof of who this person is. It wasn't just, come and see, I found someone. It's who the law and the prophets have declared. And they are God's two great witnesses. See, the law convicts men, Psalm 19.7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. And we'll be talking uh, next session um, about the ways that we can use evangelism. We look at the way Jesus dealt with the woman at the well, one of the most incredible examples of, of witnessing techniques, if you like, that we can use. Uh, Ray Comfort has uh, his whole ministry is based around this idea of the way of the master, the way that Jesus accomplished things. Um, but the law is such a powerful tool in convicting people of their sin. I have some funny examples to share from my work colleagues of conversations we've had next time. Um, but the, the prophets convince men. So the law convicts, but the prophets convince. The prophets give us overwhelming evidence beyond really what anybody would, would possibly need um, to show us that, that which we believe is true. In uh, Acts 1.3, uh, we read there, to whom... Also he, being Jesus, showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. We don't have a blind faith. We're not just expected to hope this is right. You know, it's not a leap in the dark thing. We have got unbelievable evidence supporting that which we read in scripture. That's just the front page of the, the, the website, Cavalry Chapel Paul website. You notice at the top there, 
the scripture is probably too small to read from where you are, but it's simply from Luke 14. It just says, And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. This is a scripture that the Lord laid upon my heart with regard to this fellowship here. That we are to compel people. You can't compel without evidence. We have overwhelming evidence. Um, if you visit the website, I encourage you to click on that link there and have a look at the page we put up. It's a kind of a separate website. Science versus evolution. Evolution is not science. And it's so easy to refute evolution. There's some very, very simple arguments that you can use. The, the best evolutionary, I use the word in quotes, scientists, um, have tried to argue these things. They cannot answer these questions. You know, we have overwhelming evidence supporting us right the way through on every level, historically, archaeologically, mathematically. The scripture is incredible. We have the, the evidence that God has provided in the prophets. Peter says we have the more sure word of prophecy. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Nathanael said unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that that Philip called thee, when thou was under the fig tree, I saw thee. See, Jesus is everything. You know, we read in Hebrews 4.13, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him to whom we have to do. Nathanael answered and said unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. And he said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter you shall see heaven opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Uh, a comment from Adam Clark in relation to that, he just says, um, kind of a paraphrase, the quote, As thou hast credited my divine mission on this simple proof, that I saw thee uh, when and where no human eye placed where mine was could see thee, thy faith shall not rest merely upon this, for thou shalt see greater things than these, more numerous and express proofs of my eternal power and Godhead. And that's we see through John's Gospel, these incredible proofs that are presented time after time. Okay, chapter 2, it's not going to take us anywhere long as chapter 1, so don't, don't worry, we we're almost there. Uh, and we're going to just pick a few highlights as we just go through this, just to conclude this evening. The third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. The third day, cutting a long story short, is a Tuesday. It's not a third day after anything specific. It's the third day. See, in the act of creation, on the third day, twice God says it was good. The second day, no mention of it being good. And there's some interesting reasons for that, uh, which we won't go into this evening. But needless to say, the third day received, if you like, these twice, it was told it was good. It became known as the day of double blessing. If you're going to get married, what day do you want to get married on? The the day of double blessing. And that is still practiced today in Israel. So that's the answer to that. Um, And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, they have no wine. Jesus said unto her, woman, what have I to do with thee, mine hour? Is not yet come. Now notice Jesus' response. He says, Woman, you see, Jesus never calls Mary mother. Now there's an interesting article that we've included in the notes which asks the question about was it actually Mary's egg? Okay, I'll let you read it at your leisure. Um, but Jesus never actually calls Mary mother, not once. Um, Incidentally, John never actually calls her Mary. You know, at the cross, Jesus entrusted the care of Mary to John. John never actually calls her Mary. He'll always give some other respectful title. Um, So that's very interesting. And then we have that mention there, mine hour is not yet come. Now, we're not going to talk about that this evening, but you are going to see throughout John's Gospel, Jesus say, mine hour is not yet come. 
Don't tell anybody that I'm the Christ. Don't tell anybody that I've done this miracle. Keep it quiet. Shh. After the feeding of the 5,000, they want to take him and make him king. He walks away. Very strange. If you want to read ahead, the answer is in John chapter 12. But we'll get there eventually. His mother said unto the servants, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. You know, this is the, the confidence that's drawn from spending so much time in his presence. And the same is true for us. Our confidence in him will likewise be directly proportional to the amount of time we spend in his presence. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus said unto them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said unto them, Draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and said unto him, Every man at the beginning does set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. So first miracle that Jesus does, and bear in mind John is around some 70 plus years now after the event that he's actually writing this down, recording it in his gospel. But look at the details he remembers. Six water pots. Set apart for purification. If you want to read the details about that, it's in Numbers 19, the, the ashes of the red heifer and everything else, uh, all to do with that. Um, but the pots John mentioned specifically were made of stone. Now, why did John choose this miracle? He only chooses seven in the whole of his gospel. So why does John choose this particular one to start off with? It's a bizarre miracle on the surface. Why did Jesus do this? And again, nobody else knew about it. It was just his disciples. How was it manifesting his glory, which we're told it was? Well, if one thing I'm going to continually hammer, and that is that there are no meaningless details in the Bible. Every number, every place name, every detail are all there by deliberate supernatural design. When you understand that, the Bible comes alive. Six is the number of man. You know, man was created on the sixth day, 666, all these loads of other examples we could use in scripture. And so we start to see, if you like, that this has reference to us, these six water pots. How does that apply to us? Well, the first miracle Jesus does in our lives is to take a vessel that was intended to be set apart. These water pots were for the purifying water. But they've become empty and stone, just like we've become. Then they're filled with water, the water of the word, I'd suggest. The once empty vessel now brings forth fruit. This change, this miraculous thing, and it's the fruit of the vine. Remember what Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Incredible picture in that miracle. As we go through those miracles, all of the miracles that we'll see have reference to us and what Christ has accomplished for us. Another lesson is simply that the world offers its best first. You know, they, they'll try and get you inoculated and then, you know, then the poison follows. The world does it. They try to put the attractive things there to try and get us in like bait. And then when we're hooked then we find there's all sorts of problems occur. God's way is different. He saves the best until last. We have a new heaven and a new earth coming that will be much better than this. Um, Psalm 30 verse 5, Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. Again, that we start not so good, end up wonderful. And this is the way God does things. After this, he went down to Capernaum and his mother, and his brethren, and disciples, and they continued there not many days. Now we'll find that Capernaum will become, if you like, his hometown, the centre of the Galilean ministry for Jesus. 
And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changes of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changes' money and overthrew the tables. And said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house has eaten me up. Was this an outburst of wrath? Not at all. It was righteous anger. Jesus didn't lose it here. Uh, The money changers were conducting business in the worship area. They were deliberately profiteering from God's people. You see, people who were coming up for a distance had to offer sacrifices, and rather than bringing the animals or whatever else, they could purchase things there. So it was a legitimate business, but it was the way it was being done. It was all, if you like, an issue of priorities. And Jesus again came, he's the light, and light exposes darkness. As I say, it was an issue of priorities. God is a jealous God. And I mentioned as well that we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we need to look at the issues of priorities in our own hearts as well. You know, are there things invading the worship area in our lives? And then Jesus answered the Jews and said unto him, um, sorry, then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? So here we go again. The question is authority. By what authority? Who gave you permission? You know, it's always those appointed by men that question those appointed by God. You know, I don't need some man in a dress to give me permission to speak from God's word. You know, the word of God itself is the authority that we need. Just as John had said earlier, um, Jesus answered and said unto them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, forty and six years was this temple in building and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spoke of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover and the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them, because he knew all men. And he did not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. What a sad indictment that is. You see, Paul tells us, in our flesh dwells no good thing. And though many had believed, as Jesus had been doing these miracles around this Passover and he's been there in Jerusalem, they believed intellectually, but the real change had not taken place. You see, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. And you can have an intellectual acknowledgement of something, but if there's no change taken place in your heart, if there's never been genuine repentance, then there's no change taken place. We shall pick it up from there next week. Let's just bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Father God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the examples, for the lessons, for the models we see. We thank you how so much of this speaks directly to us, Lord. Father, we thank you that we, though we're once empty stone water pots, that you have put into us your water, the water of your word, and you've transformed it to bring forth fruit. Lord, we thank you that that which we could never have done, you have accomplished for us. And Lord, that's why it's grace. It's what you have, you have given us. God's riches at Christ's expense. And Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you've done this for us. We thank you that you are God. And we thank you, Lord, that we can entrust our lives into your care. And Father, we do that right now. We pray that as we go from here, you'll keep us growing in the knowledge and in the grace. And Father, we just thank you for the privilege we have of being yours and being able to meet together like this. Lord, keep us safe as we travel. And Lord, bring us back safely next time we meet, that we may continue to study and to seek you and to understand more of what you would have for us. We ask it all in the name of Jesus. Amen.